record. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. Violence done to me and to my kinsmen be upon Babylon. Let the inhabitant of Zion say, My blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Let Jerusalem say, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry, and Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lion's cubs. While they're inflamed, I will prepare them a feast and make them drunk that they may become merry and then a sleep, a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like lambs and male goats. How Babylon is taken. The praise of the whole earth seized. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. The sea has come up on Babylon. She's covered with its tumultuous waves. Her cities have become a horror, a land of drought and a desert, a land in which no one dwells and through which no son of man passes. And I will punish Bel in Babylon and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nations shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. Go out from the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Let not your heart faint. Be not fearful. At the report heard in the land, when a report comes in one year, and afterward a report in another year, and violence is in the land, and ruler is against ruler. We end our reading there. Today we get to talk about monsters in the Bible. <laughs> I almost put it as a title, and I didn't want you to get the first impression of this message to be that of a, a flippant a childhood storybook, where it's really just make-believe. No, sadly, we're talking about real evil of terrible, horrible things that the ancient nation Babylon did to, you could say, our brothers and sisters in ancient Jerusalem. It's not fake. It's not cartoon monsters from a children's book. These are military behemoths, true monsters like Babylon. And when Babylon crushed Jerusalem, it was one of the most gruesome and destructive scenes in the history of the world. But what's more important is that they were God's people. And God was watching and recording all of it. And then Babylon took prisoners and still holding them in, in the belly of Babylon. When Babylon is described this way, when we understand what's at stake, uh, we have reached chapters 50 and 51 and something feels right about things that were wrong being addressed and made right, that the God, who's the judge of all the nations, is now giving back an answer to Babylon. When will Babylon give an answer, an account for the evil that they did? And in our passage, it seems that God is saying, it's time, let's go to court. And so that's my main point, the, the main sentence of the sermon on your outline, as if in court, God confronted Babylon about their crime of swallowing up God's people like an evil monster or an evil whale. Notice verse 34 says it was like a monster that God swallowed his people. 
But then skip down to verse 44, the middle of verse 44, that God will take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. I tried to emphasize that so you see that God is answering the swallowing by taking out of his mouth what he swallowed. We are meant to be reminded of the actual whale that swallowed Jonah, but then spat him out again onto land. God used a whale to teach straying prophet Jonah a lesson, and then God commanded the whale to release Jonah. Similarly here, in our study, God used the monster-like Babylon to teach his exiles a chastising lesson, and then God commanded the evil empire of Babylon to release the exiles, or if you will, the monster to vomit them back up again and let them go back home. So we'll see this in three uh, parts. First, uh, verses 34 and 35, like a witness in courtroom, Jerusalem testified about the deportations. We have the exiles on the stand. Then verses 36 and 37, like a defense attorney in the courtroom, God took the case of his people, Jerusalem. And then lastly, verses uh, 38 to 46, like the judge of the courtroom, God can be both the defense attorney and the judge in this imaginary courtroom. God issues the sentence against the guilty, performs their punishment, and tells his people to go free. It's a drama. It's meant to be a drama. It's telling an important story about how God relates to sinners, how God relates to evil, and how God saves his covenant people. So we start in verse 34. First thing you see are quotation marks. It's because suddenly we're in a courtroom now, hearing testimony, and the testimony is being recorded for us, written down by one of those dictation devices, if you will. The exiles are on the stand, testifying how they suffered evil from the whale Babylon. So in verse 34, we can read and imagine maybe the transcript being read back. Quote, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, quote, swallowed me like a monster. Is that what you said, Mr. Exile? Yes, yes, that's what I said, because that's what it felt like, because that's what happened. And here the word monster can be translated as sea monster or some places dragon, uh, some mythological animal. I think it's convenient and understandable to translate it as a whale. This very same Hebrew word is used in Genesis 1.21 where it reads, God created the great sea creatures. So we could say an evil whale, Babylon, for purpose of today's study. Their, their pathway, see the exile's pathway was the same pathway as the prophet Jonah. You go in, you come back out, right? Into the whale, right back out of the whale again. Jonah being swallowed was surely fatal. What would you suppose is your prognosis if you're inside of a whale? Chance of living, right? It's being inside your own tomb. And yet, to the delight of children everywhere, God then ordered the expulsion of Jonah back out of the whale in an unexpected action of God that amounts to his resurrection. It's the same storyline for God's exiles. They went into the behemoth of Babylon. They were snatched and eaten, ended up in the, the very inside of the monster in the central city, Babylon, in his belly, if you will. The exiles were goners, right? I mean, what are their, their prognosis, their chance of making it out? Surely being inside this monster is fatal for them. If it weren't for God's promise that 70 years later, right? You know the story. Yet to the delight of God's children everywhere, the expulsion of the exiles back out of the monster Babylon is a surprise that amounts to the resurrection of the exiles. But all this can't happen unless there's some time in world history that God makes it right and makes it legitimate for people to be brought back from the dead, for people not to be sentenced under his wrath. You see, it's the same storyline for God's son. He was crucified, died, and 
um, was pierced then, then buried in the belly of the earth, if you will, with a large stone blocking the entrance. So at the hands of a Roman Empire, Jesus, you could, you could say, was deported to the tomb. And yet the expulsion of Jesus back out of the grave is a surprise that's gloriously explained as the miraculous act of God we know of as the resurrection of Christ. The one greater than Jonah came. So here in verse 35, we get the exiles continuing their testimony on the stand. Much like Jonah, who prayed inside the whale, here the exiles seem to pray from inside Babylon's belly, and yet on on the stand, if you will, here in our little mini-story in verse 35, the exiles pray against their oppressor, asking God to issue some of that fierce justice that God is capable of doing. The exiles knew from verse 35 somehow from God's teaching previously, perhaps when they received the book of Jeremiah and studied chapter 29 and chapters 31 to 33, God's covenant promises to once again take his people under his care. The prayer of the exiles here is that God would put things right. What was needed was justice and punishment for his enemies, which is the action that would release the slaves. The prayer of the exiles here is huge. Look at verse 35. The violence done to me and to my kinsmen be upon Babylon. In other words, do to them what they did to us. Turn it around, Lord. Right? Let the inhabitant of Zion say, and continuing verse 35, my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. That's another word for Babylon. Let Jerusalem say... The prayer of the exiles here, on the stand, if you will, is a, is a plea to God. You're in a position, Lord God, to do something about this. Here we are, suffering under the hand of the Babylonians. We're expecting and we're asking for you as the God over all nations to have a cosmic scale reversal of the cosmic scale oppression that Babylon has done to us And it will result in a cosmic scale rejoicing from us. So God, who's truly the king of all, will liberate his people, and he would do whatever was required in order to liberate his people. So Jerusalem in exile, and yet on the stand here, is praying and believing in God's coming reversal. They'll come up out of exile, and Babylon will go down. And what animated this statement, this prayer of the exiles in verse 35 was their knowledge of God's covenant and that therefore their pathway arc down and back again is the same storyline for the exiles as it was for Jonah and as it would be for Jesus. God would need to act toward Babylon in response for the blood of Jerusalem. Move on to verses 36 and 37 where God now takes up the the role of a defense attorney in this courtroom, and he takes the case of Jerusalem, takes their, their plea. Would you please be our lawyer, is basically what they're saying. In verse 36, the Lord God had an announcement to make. He said, behold. Whenever God says, behold, there's some big announcement coming. So what's he about to say? He revealed that he would be their lawyer in court. God himself would operate as their defense attorney for his people in this case of injustice. The actual quote from verse 36 was that God would plead your cause and take vengeance for you. Of course, we know that it's more complicated than that. That they were sinning and God put them in time out. God put them in chastisement. He sent them there. It's, it's not simply that they were innocent and they were suffering under injustice. They were also guilty, but that guilt had been pardoned as we saw in chapter 50. 
So here the previous theme of the vengeance of the Lord is now combined with his upcoming courtroom actions. What will he do as attorney? And mention is made of the waters associated with Babylon next in verse 36. Babylon believed that the way that Babylon came into existence was by conquering some mythical chaos of the seawaters. This ancient origins theory that ancient peoples would have about how they came into existence. Babylon believed that their power came from dominating a chaotic and mythical sea that was beneath them and beneath the earth. They, they constantly were able to dominate this sea. And so God, knowing that, speaks into that and says here in verse 36, I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry. He's speaking into their myth. <laughs> He's saying, if you believe that you're in control of the sea, tell you what, I'll just dry it up for you. Just as Egypt was no match for the Lord God of Israel because he could part the literal Red Sea, so also Babylon will be no match for the Lord God of Israel because he could dry up their mythical sea. And the courtroom was an allegory to show his power and authority over Babylon, so he mentions a mythical sea that he will dry up. And next he says the literal scene of Babylon given in verse 37. This we can understand. And I read, Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals for boys and girls. Jackals are scavenging animals only found in very broken down places. A horror and a hissing without inhabitant, verse 37. Now, you may remember that Babylon used to have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. In addition to the ancient world's strongest army and the ancient world's most powerful government, and it would suddenly be a place that could be described here in verse 37 as without any military political power because it's without any human life. God would bring a decisive end to the largest, most powerful empire the ancient world had known. That is God coming as the defense for his people. The action against Babylon is that action for his people. So we move to their third point, like the judge now of the courtroom. God issues the sentence against the guilty, performs their punishment, and tells his people to go free. Here he takes the position of judge in the courtroom and started a slideshow. Tell you what, this is what's going to happen next. And he shows a screen. And the screen, the first picture in verse 38, is roaring lions, like a group of hungry young lions eager for food. And it's Babylon. Babylon is like the roaring lions, or Our author envisioned Babylon like a hungry group of lions desperate for food and drink, ready to capture and eat everything within reach. However, in verse 39, the Lord instead shows the next screen. And the next screen is the Lord feeding the lions some food that had the effect of a tranquilizer that became fatal. These lions would eat and become intoxicated swiftly, fall unconscious to the ground, and end up dying. In verse 40, the roaring lions don't seem much like lions anymore. We shouldn't be scared of lions who are falling down and dying. They fall down. We are told in verse 40 that God would bring them down like lambs. In fact, like lambs to the slaughter. So this little paragraph and just a few screens, God is showing as judge from verse 38 to verse 40, roaring lions quickly become lambs, rams, and goats, rendered helpless and slaughtered by the Lord. That was that. The verdict from God and the sentence implemented, the execution completed. God is, as judge, saying, this is my courtroom, and this is my world, and I'm God over all nations. In a few quick screens, verse 41, there began a song of gloating over Babylon's defeat and destruction, leading off with a big announcement. 
The exact announcement repeated from chapter 50, verse 2, Babylon is taken. That announcement. There's abundant evidence of the reversal. A reversal here. Rather than Babylon being victorious over yet another nation, making each nation a horror, again and again, that nation's a horror, that nation's a horror, they blew that one up, they attacked that one, they conquered that one, they obliterated that one, each nation's a horror. No, instead, this time, now what happens? It's the sight of Babylon that's become a horror to the nations. You see the reversal? Babylon had to undergo a complete reversal rather than an object of praise, as verse 41 says, quote, the praise of the whole earth. Instead, Babylon had been expeditiously reduced to a graphic scene of defeat and slaughter such as you would have to turn away to view that. Verse 42, they were flooded not with actual seawater, but rather with an allegorical tidal wave of enemy troops who conquered and left it deserted as for their status of actual moisture. We read in verse 43 that Babylon literally had the opposite problem. Babylon had become, quote, a land of drought and desert, verse 43, and a wasteland in which no one dwells anymore, the once productive region even to the production of the hanging gardens, now reduced to a lifeless wilderness. Verse 44, Bel means Lord, and it refers here to the Babylonian false god. And there's three words here that sound similar to each other in Hebrew. Bel, Babylon, and swallowed. The word swallowed. Bel, Babylon, and swallowed. So there's a word play here in verse 44 in order to emphasize the message. So verse 44 reads in English, I will punish Bel in Babylon and take out of his mouth what he swallowed. Those three words seem to stand out. The message is that God will have true victory over Babylon, over her god Bel, and over the swallowing that they think that they accomplished. Because next what God says is, yeah, you swallowed other nations, but you're about to have a unique experience. The living God is going to intervene this time, and during your customary habit of swallowing a nation, in order to reverse your swallowing action, to the delight of children everywhere, God would allegorically reach down Bell's mouth, as it were, and remove from his belly through his mouth and throat, the people that he seized, ate, and swallowed, but apparently had not yet digested. The evil monster is being forced to relinquish all of Jerusalem that he had swallowed, and is not free to retain it, not free to consume God's people. The Lord was snatching the life of his people out of the jaws of the consuming monster, Babylon. If that's not to the delight of children everywhere, then what is? At the end of verse 44, there's a brief and simple mention of the wall of Babylon. It's almost a shame that it's just mentioned because you need to understand what all is there, the significance of it. The wall had been a crucial part of Babylon's success and strength because after you would attack a nation, if they gathered, they might want to try to attack you. So they needed a defense. The wall system had been famous and impenetrable as a double wall. If you imagine, I'll just give you some stats real fast. The outer wall, 12 feet thick and very high, followed by 23 feet of ground with a ditch in it, a waterway that we might call a moat around a castle. They had a moat around their city, followed by another wall on the inside of the moat, that wall being 21 feet thick and very tall. The moat located between the walls, you understand, wall, moat, Wall, And if you added it all up, 12 feet, 23 feet, 21 feet, 
56 feet of various defenses all around the city. And now we're told here in verse 44, God plainly just very simply said, the wall of Babylon has fallen. We get no details. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll get a video or details. Who could do that? Only God. The strength of Babylon's gone. The safety that Babylon thought it had had evaporated. The exiles could literally walk out and go home. And formerly, the false god Bel had been credited with Babylon's victory over Jerusalem and over the God of Israel. But here, the Lord our God is revealing that he had never been defeated by Bel. Rather, the Lord had used the Babylonian military system to chastise his people. And here, he's showing that the false god Bel didn't exist at all. Babylon's glory days were ending because their God wasn't coming to their rescue. If you want to say it cutely, God rang the bell of Babylon's God. And as 44, verse 44 says, nations are no longer flowing to Babylon. Instead, nations will be flowing to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the worship of God from every nation. God will rebuild Jerusalem, then he'll rebuild his temple, then he'll send his son, and in his son he'll build his kingdom worldwide and his church around the world. Verse 45, God repeats his message to the exiles, be ready to flee. Note that he referred to these abused exiles, these chastised persons, these former Jerusalem inhabitants, as my people. Do you catch that in verse 45? God's fierce anger, no longer chastising his own people, but instead God had truly pardoned them for his sins. He refers to them as my people, yet his anger can be seen throughout the passage being turned against Babylon, the exiles, being admonished to depart the empire that God was dismantling. Run for your lives is the idea in verse 45. In verse 46, there will be rumors and reports starting, you know, a swirl Probably the rising coalition of armies led by Persia to the north and to the east. Reports would come and rumors would fly across the city. The exiles could hear them. And the exiles might be tempted to be afraid concerning the status of the Babylonian Empire. We thought it was bad, maybe it'll get worse. The resulting violence, the apparent instability of life all around, the patterns of ruler rising up against ruler, who will win, how will we fare, and God and his... Wisdom and shepherd-likeness is clear in his repeated instructions to his exile of people. Let not your heart faint. And be not fearful. Don't get caught up in the drama and turmoil of the kings and rulers of this earth as they swirl around and one yells, I'm stronger, and the other one yells, he's stronger. Would you just silence it all and remember that you're my people? Don't pay attention to such perennial pre-reporting about gossip, about what might be happening. The only thing to remember and the only thing to focus on, my exiles, is that Babylon will be defeated by me, which means that you will be free to go home. Be ready to make a run for it. God versus the evil whale that is Babylon. We're going to end here our study because there's so much more in that next uh, section here. But before we stop, let's apply it to ourselves through Christ. Conclusion has three application points. Number one, remember we deserve God's wrath, but we get God's mercy. Remember we deserve God's wrath, but we get God's mercy. I, I get concerned sometimes we study chapters on the judgment of the big, bad, evil Babylon that we would 
fall into kind of a self-righteous pride of the game of comparison. We're better than them, aren't we? And that's no spiritual health. Spiritual health comes remembering the truth that formerly we were enemies of God. Before the exiles were sent into exile, they were not listening to Jeremiah preaching God's word for a long time. We were enemies of God. Put it this way, in the legal case, the courtroom that we've been studying, if the case were tried for us in the courtroom of heaven, it would come out that we deserve the wrath and curse of God. Our personal sins may not be as bad as the imperial ambition and the cruel war crimes of an ancient superpower like Babylon, granted, but we also cannot avoid the indictment that we share in the rebellion of Adam and everybody who's human. We deserve the wrath of God. Remember that. Why don't we receive the wrath of God? Only because of the mercy of God. Remember that. Thus, the application is remember that we deserve God's wrath, but we get God's mercy. Let me read it from Scripture, Ephesians 2, 3. We all were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 3 to 6. Studying God's fierce judgment against Babylon should leave us grateful for his mercy to us. That's number one. Number two out of three. God always wins. <laughs> Be encouraged and remember, God always wins. He wins over ancient Babylon. It's a slam dunk here. He wins over the Roman Empire that ruled at the time of Jesus and had a hand in crucifying the Son of God. He wins over all advances, all attacks, and all evils, and all nations, and all generations. He's on his throne right now. Nothing has escaped his attention. Nothing has escaped his protection, his guidance. Everything is being enacted the way that he and his perfect will has decided for the history of the world and your life to go. The exiles went home. Jonah went on his assigned preaching journey, eventually. (laughs) Jesus died, rose again, went back to heaven, when seated on the throne where he belongs. And all of us will worship and serve God in our given assignments until that day when he calls us each individually to go home or when we see Christ come again and we're all ushered back to our honored seats at heaven's banquet with Jesus. Because God wins over evil, which means we get redeemed. Down with evil, up with God's people. It's just that simple. So the next time you're singing the Alleluia Chorus, and I hope it's long before December, recall the context is God wins. The themes here of Jeremiah 50 and 51 about the downfall of evil and the salvation of God's people are repeated in Revelation 18 and 19. A whole other sermon series in Revelation 18 and 19, but they're tied to our chapter after saying that Babylon has fallen, and after saying that Christ has tread the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God the Almighty, then we get those great words that Christ is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. And then the cry comes out, Alleluia, which is a theme of the whole chorus. Next time you're singing Alleluia chorus or any other, Song or hymn with the word hallelujah, remember that God wins. And third and last, third application, last application, just like the exiles, 
we pray while waiting for our coming restoration. Just like the exiles, we pray while waiting for our coming restoration. We are taught to pray while we wait. Wait for our passing, wait for Christ's return, wait for justice in this case. Listen to how the exiles prayed to God in verse 34. He has devoured me. It almost sounds like one child reporting, he pushed me. It almost sounds like we're reporting to God that the big bad bully is on the playground doing us in. He has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has rinsed me out. But if it weren't so humorous on the surface, it would bring an emotion of sadness, wouldn't it? There's a lot of suffering. We live in the age of the most persecution in the history of the world. Our brothers and sisters are being imprisoned and beaten and killed. And again in verse 35, from the stand, as it were, from the belly of the whale, as it were, we hear this, the violence done to me be upon Babylon. It's prayer. That Christ taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Listen carefully. Thy kingdom come. I use the King James there. Thy kingdom come. What do we mean when we pray that? There's a whole lot in those three words. Thy kingdom come. It literally means it's a verb which means reign. You reign. Please let it be that you reign. I want you to reign over all things. My life, my script, my family. I want you to reign over this nation and all nations. We're praying for God to go ahead and win. <laughs> Bring it home. We're praying for God's kingdom to come to advance, to prove victorious for his people and for his church. We pray victoriously. We don't pray little wimpy prayers. Oh, Lord, if you were able. Please don't pray that. You straighten your mind and heart out and you say, Lord, we know you're able. And so would you please. And he encourages us as his exiles in this world. Verse 36, I will plead your cause, he says. And again, verse 46, let not your heart be faint and be not fearful. Doesn't that sound like our Lord Jesus when he said in John 16, 33, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the one to whom you're praying when you're praying. And so just like the exiles, we pray while we wait for certain restoration.